for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Great to have you with us. And a special big thank you to our community in the TNT chat bar. Just go to tntradio.live, lower right-hand corner. You'll see a red bubble. That's the TNT chat room. We've got a vibrant community in there. That's where you're going to be hanging out during this program. I see you guys in there. I hope some of you guys in the chat room are like looking at the video stream now so you can kind of see what's going on. I know you guys are sort of loyal audio stream subscribers, and we love you. I'd like to see what your thoughts are on the video and uh, what you think of some of our guests as well and also we'll be uh, hopefully working in some uh, clips uh, into the program in the coming days uh, as we sort of change our format a little bit here now in the second hour we're going to be joined by international human rights lawyer arno devile he's going to be joining us from moscow looking forward to that conversation because things are breaking and breaking pretty hard uh, on the issue of ukraine back to the elon musk trip to to the middle east i mean we talked about this with our previous guest basil valentine it's a great segment by the way um basil's just been such a solid analyst on this issue since the beginning he's obviously got very strong opinions probably because he's been following this issue for so long so many years it's nothing new uh but that does come to a shock to some people who are just picking this issue up and gleaning what they know based on whatever mainstream headlines have been pushed out since October 7th, if that's all you're getting your worldview and your perspective on the the Israeli-Palestinian issue, then you are going to be hugely uh, under-informed and under-equipped to really understand what's going on. That's why we like to speak to experienced analysts and journalists who actually have a deep knowledge of it. That informs how their discussion is going to be on this issue. And I think it's more factual, more accurate, and quite frankly, more realistic than some of the other commentary I'm seeing from some people that I can only describe as, uh, let's just say, not journalistic. We'll leave it there. But uh, anyway, back to the Elon Musk uh, trip to Israel. You know, uh, I, I, I can make some very strong comments on this, but uh, we'll take a few interesting takes from Twitter, X Twitter here. And one of them is uh, Joe Santos, who's a, a great commentator on Twitter spaces. And he's saying, for the sake of free speech, stop commenting on politics, Elon Musk. I know people might want to hear from you, but it also allows you to be pressured. Keep pushing the boundaries of humanity, but realize in order to do so at a high level, you will need political friends on both sides and around the world. So basically saying, Elon, get 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 control of your sort of Trump uh, Twitter finger there. It's not doing you any favors and puts you in compromising positions, so much so that you will then be commanded to make a trip to a war zone and sit there in a photo op session with the person who's being accused of war crimes. That's how history is going to play this one out. And I, I will say, I don't want to be casual with our World War II uh, comparisons and analogies, but let's just throw this on the table because it's true. During the Second World War, a lot of powerful uh, politicians, celebrities, industrialists, all made the kind of pilgrimage, if you will, to Nazi Germany. Because at the time, as this was breaking out, a lot of people viewed 
uh, Germany as the future of Europe. And uh, the mercurial, flamboyant leader, the little man with the mustache, as a sort of you know man of the year. I think he might have even got Time Man of the Year at some point, although Time Time Magazine's not very happy about ever admitting that, and that, that, that tweet might even get you censored on some platforms. They might call it anti-Semitic to put it. Actually, that did happen to me. Oh, my gosh, that happened to me. I got flagged on Facebook for posting Hitler Man of the Year cover from Time Magazine just to point out how great the mainstream media are uh, in the past that they themselves even dubbed some of the worst despots in history and mass murderers as the man of the year. So the whole point is you might be in favor one week, you fall out of favor after that based on what you do. So everyone was cozying up to Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany because it just the power, they were seduced by the power, the clout, the the influence there, the idea that this that strength of the Nazi regime was going to sort of you know, beat the path for the future of Europe. Okay, it's kind of in a nutshell, that's what was going on. But what did that do to the regime? And this is the interesting part. When, for the regime, getting all of those visits and photo ops from wealthy industrialists, uh, politicians, uh, journalists, celebrities, what that does for the regime is it emboldens them. It empowers them. They see every single one of those visits and photo ops as an endorsement. And if if they're engaged in uh, dubious and murderous policies, they take that as an endorsement for those policies. So in effect, by going and having this uh, wonderful photo session and struggle session with Netanyahu, Elon Musk endorses Israel's carpet bombing ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza and whatever's going on in the West Bank too. That's that's an endorsement. If you were sensitive politically, you would not want to be bracketed or juxtaposed with that type of person. Uh, it'd be like, for instance, uh, so it's, with, with what's at stake in terms of international law cases here for Israel and, and for Netanyahu and his government, it's, it's serious. So it's it's well in excess of like for but but yet someone like Elon Musk, he won't go and sit with the Taliban leader because they then he would be cavorting with terrorists, but it's got no problem uh doing a sort of contrition tour with somebody who's just basically killed twenty thousand civilians and the West haven't even batten an eyelid. Okay. So that's a political move by Musk. Here's what Syrian girl says. So basically, this is what happened, says Syrian girl on X. Elon Musk did an interview saying, if you kill someone's child, you create Hamas. Basically, she's paraphrasing. Then Musk tweeted uh, this, and the ADL went ape shit, to use a profane term there. Uh, and the, the advertisers were ran away. They were driven away. All true. And she says, Netanyahu then calls Musk into the teacher's office and over uh, <laughs> teacher's office. Oh, and Musk overcompensates by throwing Palestinians under the bus in the process. That's a, that's exactly what happened. So I, I, I don't, I can't see how this is going to be a good thing for him unless he's really scared of the uh, Israeli lobby of the ADL doesn't want to, get more advertisers driven off the platform. But what is this? This is just kind of racketeering.
that's going on. And the whole point when this started with the ADL, the ADL was brigading against Twitter advertisers behind uh, Elon Musk's back that he didn't even know it was going on. They were lobbying for them to pull their ads from ex-Twitter. For what? Because they said they alleged there was an increase in hate speech or an increase in anti-Semitic speech. And then Musk pulled the data on it and showed that there wasn't. There was actually a decrease. So the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which is an extension of the Israeli lobby, um, they were called out and exposed as basically lying. Not only lying, but maliciously trying to destroy a major business in the United States of America as a global footprint. And for what? What was the reason for this? Uh, because they couldn't control it? Obviously, yes. Because they couldn't dictate the terms of speech. They wanted to destroy it, put it out of business, weaken Elon Musk, force him to sell cheap or whatever. So this is like organized crime, basically. And he said, I'm going to sue the ADL. Has he sued the ADL? Is that going forward? I would think after this week uh, in Tel Aviv and doing the kibbutz tour, I would say, no, he's not going to sue the ADL. I'm just taking a wild hunch, a wild guess. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Please, if you have any information on this case, because I can't find any, that this is still alive and kicking. If you got any info on this, please share it in the TNT chat community or send me a DM on Twitter. I've got open DMs on Twitter X, so you can contact us there. Eventually, we'll get around to it. We're getting quite a few DMs each day, uh, sometimes as many as 100. So we're working hard to myself and who knows, uh, we'll have to get a team to start combing through all of these DMs and uh, emails that we're getting because it's just too much sometimes. That, keeping up with the news and analysis of what's going on in the world, it is a tall order, ladies and gentlemen. There's only 24 hours in the day, but we try our hardest. We do our best. So anyway, we've got a few revelations uh, which we're going to share with you in the next segment. I'm looking forward to that conversation with our next guest, human rights lawyer, and independent journalist Arno Devole from Moscow. In the meantime, I think it's time that we take a break here with TNT Today's News Talk. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You are live and direct in hour number two, and the important and exciting part of this conversation is just about to unfold. So we'll see you guys right here in just a few minutes. TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy. But millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying. By the hands of those who don't value nature, 
even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. Unbiased information. Honest and forthright. News without the misinformation. It doesn't matter what side you're from. What matters is what you say, the truthfulness behind it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. You're listening to TNT Today's News Talk. It's great to have you with us. And a big hello to everybody in the TNT chat community there. We've seen the numbers are getting greater every week. It's great to see the size of our community. That's where you want to be during the live broadcast. You want to be in the TNT chat room. You can access that tntradio.live. You'll see it there. Just log in. It'll keep you logged in for future sessions uh, throughout the week. So that's where you want to be. All the best links are there. All the best memes, all the best banter. It's all happening in the TNT chat community during this show, but all shows as well, but especially during this show. That's where you want to be. Now, let's pivot to Eurasia right now. And there's some serious breaking news, and it's breaking hard uh, with Ukraine, and it's breaking fast. Things are happening so quickly there now. But it, this is coming at the same time when the global media tension and the 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 the, the eye of Sauron, if as it were, of the global mainstream media seems to be focused on uh, Israel and Palestine right now. But big things are happening in Ukraine. And I'm going to bring on to the to the stage right now, uh, independent journalist, international human rights lawyer, Arno Devole, who has been consistently commenting on these issues for a long time now. He's joining us uh, from Russia right now. Arno, how are you? Hello, Patrick. I'm fine. It's great to see you, Arno. And uh, I've uh, I've been watching some of your reports on other global media platforms, and I know you've been pretty current on this. Uh, tell us about some of the significant things that have happened uh, in Kiev, especially. It seems like things are moving and developing quite quickly, but it's not being done in the eye of the international media, and the politicians in the West are not talking about it. But it seems to me like there's a major pivot going on. Are we going to see some changes, and if if so, what should we be looking out for there? Well, indeed, uh, with everyone's attention focused on Gaza and uh, the uh, atrocious uh, slaughter of civilians there, uh, we tend to have lost a little bit uh, the plot as to what's going on uh, in Kiev. And uh, this was actually uh, something that uh, reminded itself to us in the context of an interview, which started innocuously enough uh, between a, a local... Uh, uh, media personality, Natalia, I forgot her last name, um, maybe Chuk, something like this, and the uh, head of the presidential party, uh, the uh, servant of the people party, as it were, which was an outfit quickly assembled prior to Zelensky running for the election there, uh, and head of the Rada, incidentally, who uh, kind of basically dropped a morsel and not an insignificant morsel at that when he basically uh, gave the goods on uh, the context bearing on the uh, uh, negotiation process initiated at uh, spring to tw uh, 2022. So uh, shortly, you know, after the war started, essentially, 
uh, March heading into April. And uh, basically, uh, he uh, admitted that uh, they uh, were on the way to negotiate with uh, Russia on uh, basically putting full stop on uh, what was going on. The Russians, as a sign of goodwill, had withdrawn their troops from the vicinity of Kiev at the time. And uh, bearing on what Russia's position has been for quite some time, which is, you know, we want a NATO neutral uh, 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 Ukraine uh, on our borders. We don't want any NATO state on our border, i.e. Ukraine. Uh, you know, we are willing to, uh, you know, go back to the statu quo ante, uh, assuming, I guess, that the Minsk Accord, you know, uh, uh, resume being, you know, the main uh, 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 metrics of negotiation. And uh, this individual, uh, David Arkamadia is his name, basically said that <clears throat> things were somewhat looking pretty good until Boris Johnson uh, flew in in Istanbul and pulled uh, the plug on any kind of peaceful negotiation. Uh, basically and joining Ukraine to let's just go and fight, essentially. So this raises a lot of questions, obviously bearing on the sovereignty of Ukraine in and of itself, uh, also bearing on, you know, keeping in mind that Zelensky ran on a platform uh, which put the Minsk Accord front and center and uh, basically uh, uh, Put the onus on uh, the Western uh, side as being somewhat responsible for coercing Ukraine into finding uh, itself in the position it's finding itself now. So is this a case of trying to blame somebody else but oneself? I mean, to the extent, you know, we were to assume that the premise, the Ukrainian premise is that they make their own decision. Uh, and this would basically contradict this fundamental premise. So. Uh, this is where we got, we are right now in the wake of this this kind of bombshell. I, I don't think he intended uh, his statement to take a life on its own, but uh, they have. And uh, basically now we're finding ourselves in a situation where uh, with the Rada having adopted a, uh, a draft law prohibiting any kind of negotiation with Russia, as long as Vladimir Putin is in charge, so, I mean, <laughs> kind of a sets the tone here, uh, this on the heel of this constitutional amendment calling for Ukraine to uh, join NATO, it's almost like they tied their own hands, essentially. I mean, how, I mean, what kind of a, you know, it's it's almost legally speaking on the internal front, makes it impossible, at least under the current leadership, uh, if, you know, the latter is not to disown its own statement, uh, it's hard to imagine how they could somehow uh, turn back their heels and uh, unravel those amendments, invalidate the law, although all it, all it would take is political courage to do so. But, you know, obviously this is not what seems to be coming out, out of Kiev. Uh, we have had uh, recently some uh, uh, dissenting voices within the uh, Kiev uh, regime, uh, not least of which from uh, the uh, chief of staff, military chief of staff, uh, Zaluzhny, was trying to somewhat modulate and nuance uh, um, the presidential palace uh, uh, optimistic, if not completely disconnected from reality perception of what's going on. And he was somewhat uh, reprimanded for it. 
this was followed by a purge of some of his closest advisors. So obviously, Zelensky is going all out. Uh, I guess the strategy is to, at all costs, maintain the appearance of a, uh, I'm in charge type of approach. Uh, the campaign is going, you know, uh, uh, as well as can be, you know, uh, despite uh, emerging report to the contrary. But uh, in this uh, in this particular context, it's, it's hard to imagine with the financial support uh, basically drying up and the uh, media attention completely removed from the theater of operation, if not for Ukraine itself, this on the heel of a Ukraine fatigue, but now it's Ukraine has completely disappeared from radars. Uh, and so we can expect uh, some kind of uh, internal uh, resolution uh, to this current status quo. Uh, under what shape uh, this is going to uh, happen, no one really knows. But with the uh, war being essentially lost in terms of strategic initiative, uh, all the promises of spending uh, summer in Crimea, having coffee in uh, Yalta uh, obviously are long gone promises. And uh, now, uh, you know, we're basically seeing a country being completely dried up, dried up of its use potential, uh, dried up of, uh, uh, you know, its, uh, uh, its own funding. I mean, you know, basically, you know, there's no money anymore to even uh, um, pay the salaries of, uh, of uh, government workers. And all the same, we're seeing more and more reports of uh, corruptions, uh, people being caught trying to leave the country with gold bars and luxury vehicles, uh, lots of uh, uh, cash uh, uh, suitcases, and uh, this this looks like this increasingly is looking like the Reichstag uh, or the the bunker of the Führer in April nineteen forty five. Downfall, downfall. Yeah, completely, <laughs> yeah, like the famous film. So, so you're painting a very dark picture here for the Zelensky regime. I just want to backtrack though on the peace negotiations revelations from spring of twenty twenty. Why is this significant? Does it? It seems to me like from a political point of view, Arno, that the important thing is. If there's blame that's going to be laid and, you know, finger pointing that's going to go on in, in Kiev as they try to hold together any kind of a cohesive state through this, what is really a national disaster, let's face it, um, who allowed this to happen? And that's when the blame game becomes important because somebody is going to get blamed for it, be it Zelensky or Zelensky will blame somebody else or one of his people will blame somebody else. Um, for, for basically the loss of Ukrainian sovereignty, because isn't that what it comes down to at the end of the day? And if there is a coup d'etat, if there is palace, a palace coup, and there's, let's say, a, a Zeluzhny coup, for instance, there, there, there is going to have to have some kind of a thing like uh, to restore Ukrainian sovereignty or to, to get the, the leader out who sold, sold our sovereignty out or something like this. Because I just can't see uh, the, the next government that comes in, whatever form it takes, Arno, to be basically reading off the exact same script initially, which is, you know, the kind of keep the war going. There has to be winding down the conflict. I just can't see it sustaining itself, Arno. Your thoughts? Well, you stated it properly. I mean, the problem is we don't have the personnel right now. I mean, it might exist somewhere within the ranks of the Ukrainian army or what's left of it. But to the extent there is a viable uh, pre-existing public figure that might have penetrated public consciousness, 
I'm not seeing anybody along those lines right now. So what gives? In the meantime, people keep dying. You know, they are basically scrapping the barrel. You know, they are uh, grabbing people off the street, people in their 50s, uh, you know, people suffering from disability. They're sending women increasingly. Now they have a campaign going on, trying to uh, basically uh, infuse enthusiasm in, uh, in the woman uh, womanhood of Ukraine. Uh, some of them being pregnant. We saw some footages of a pregnant woman, you know, just basically being uh, on the battlefield. So this is really a tragedy uh, going on in the, in, the, in the background of all this kind of Game of Thrones, uh, uh, Hannigan. So, uh, but who who might be able to do so uh, with what uh, uh, um, resources, what support? Uh, this is this remains the central question right now, and. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, something's got to give. Uh, I mean, there were, you see, there were talks. Could, could, yes. Sorry, could Arno, quick, could you see a scenario, not now, Arno, not now, but in like a year or two, that, that a, a leader might present itself, could be a past opposition leader, that would be somebody with uh, positive ties to Russia. In other words, that the Ukrainians would relent at some point and say, look, we have to have some kind of you know dialogue with Russia. We can't keep doing this Western, this polarized thing. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, on paper, uh, we have those individuals, uh, but the problem fundamentally is that many, if not most of them, are perceived in Washington as pro-Russian. <laughs> Uh, and so, you know, in the end, Washington might be trying to distance itself and blame temporarily the uh, the Brits for their zeal on, on, you know, preventing any kind of negotiation process to take place. But in the end, there are still red lines that Washington is not willing to see being crossed. And this would involve, uh, you know, this would basically take us back to 2004 when we had this uh, somewhat aborted Orange Revolution. Uh, between uh, Yuchenko and Yanukovych. And uh, so we're back where we started. It's come full circle again. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, uh, those people, I mean, the, the, those who were perceived as being pro-Russian were uh, high-level officials from the party of regions originated from the east and southeast area of what used to be Ukraine as we knew it then. Uh, today, with this rock version of Ukraine, where would you find someone able to, because obviously we have to take into consideration Moscow's uh, perception of what this kind of change of regime would be like. If Moscow considers that this pretty much is interchangeable in terms of this uh, inability, incapacity, unwillingness to take account of the reality, militarily speaking, and to take into account the security guarantees that Moscow has been seeking for since the beginning, essentially, then there's no reason to assume that the conflict will stop. So that's the challenge. That's the dilemma right now. Trying to find someone who might be able to take into consideration Russia's security concern, but who might also be palatable to uh, the elites in Washington, i.e. Uh, not being considered like technically a pro-Russian, because this is what they, they, they will try to do if they want to invalidate any kind of uh, process leading out to a resolution of this conflict, uh, they will say this person is a Kremlin agent, essentially. So this this is the problem. This is the dilemma right now. And there's no party of regions left. All those people, most of the high officials basically 
took refuge in Russia. So, yeah. and, and or if they reside in uh, uh, what used to be Ukraine, it's now Russia. So, <laughs> you know, this is the so, problem. So, this is bad. This is a bad outcome, Arno, because what you're saying is that they, not only they have they they're going to turn into a rump state, but that rump state has painted itself into an impossible corner whereby mm -hmm. it's 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 going to end up being a doormat on one side for for Europe and NATO on the fringe on the I'll use the term Arno on the borderlands of That's Europe exactly. a direct translation of Ukraine right Ukraine, that, yes. that, it's, this is an impossible situation for them I don't know if there's really a good way out of this it's it's really difficult Yes, it's almost like trying to fit a square into a circle or vice versa. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the makeup of the country before the war made it possible to find some kind of compromise. But now, if we're talking about a political class directly issued from Rob State of Ukraine, we are bound to get some people who are going, I mean, if they want to have a political chance of survival, not even talking about prospering and, and getting elected, but, uh, you know, to somehow, you know, become some kind of alternative to the current regime, they will have to adopt uh, anti-Russian position, at least as, you know, as a matter of principle, even if behind the, you know, the scenes they are taking stock of what's going on and they are opening channels of communication with Moscow to come to some kind of agreement. But again, if the red line is that, for instance, that uh, uh, Rump Ukraine is bound to become a member of NATO in as far as what Washington wants, then it's a non-starter. So we need to somehow, you know, come to a consensus on to what uh, is possible, taking into consideration what Moscow will accept. And then and only then we might start looking at, you know, suitable candidates. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would have been throwing out lots of names uh, previously, Arno. I mean, it just yeah. seemed like that was that's really the, the natural disposition of the country is to be a bridge between east and west, and and there was kind of a power sharing agreement, wasn't there, Arno? It's almost like how you have you know the Democrats in America in for two terms and the Republicans uh, in in Ukraine. You had the kind of pro Western uh, regime and then the sort of more pro Russian regime, and they would kind of flip flop, and it created a type of a a balance didn't it? it's a type of a parody but that's not there anymore it's not there anymore and it's a very concerning very concerning situation yes it's uh this used to be actually what ukraine should have been looking forward to be that bridge but in order to have this uh, uh quite peculiar characteristic you have to have a, a, a modus vivendi between the different uh, ethnic uh, component of what used to be Ukraine. And uh, a lot of water has gone under the bridge now. I mean, uh, what what used to be the stronghold of uh, ethnic Russians, you know, Ukrainian ethnic Russians, as we might have referred to them, you know, a mere two years ago, it's gone. It's gone forever. It's been, you know, reattached to the Russian world. Uh, and there's no going back on this. Uh, there's been too much blood spilled. And uh, obviously, you know, we have had admissions that the Minsk Accords were basically a charade uh, to allow for uh, the most nationalist uh, and pro-NATO uh, forces in Kiev 
to prepare for a forceful retaking of those rogue territories when all they would have had to do was basically sign those accords as they initially did, but uh, at least respect them, observe them, implement them in a verifiable fashion, and they would have kept the country whole, albeit with an autonomous status for those regions. And then time would have done the rest. Mm. But this is this this is uh, uh, you know, the, the Rubicon has been crossed, and there's no there's no going back now. People have voted for it, and they re-voted uh, last September to elect their own leaders within the constitutional framework of the Russian Federation. So it's it's a done deal. The train has left the station, and so now Kiev is left with you know uh, their their you know their tears to cry with you know essentially. Uh, so and with this kind of dangling promise that this deal might join NATO, you know, because obviously no one in Washington and or London wants to pull this offer off the table. But if we go by what was essentially tacitly admitted at the uh, Vilnius summit uh, recently, you know, a few months back, this is not uh, you know a viable prospect right now as far as NATO is concerned. So, so uh, I mean, uh, yes, go ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah Zeluzhny, uh, head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, basically admitted this week, he's saying there is no military plan for 2024. Well, so what he's saying is effectively, Arno, is that even if we do full mobilization, even, you know, you know let's say they mobilize 2 million, whatever's left in terms of fighting age males, I can't imagine there's a lot left in Ukraine, but let's just say they did a full mobilization, 2 million, that he's he's basically saying, even then we can't win. There's no path to victory. There's no path to military victory. So that's going to put him directly at odds with everything Zelensky has been setting up uh, for expectations for the last two years. Uh, do you see that that's i see a clash coming and if there's going to be a balance of support from the public uh and you know certainly zeluzhny versus a zelensky the credibility might start swinging over to the zeluzhny camp it could he be a viable uh temporary caretaker leader and and then zelensky sent packing to switzerland miami or or london well, I don't know if he's a viable alternative. I, I guess at this point, anyone would be a viable alternative, but we have to go with what we know and not hope for some kind of uh, uh, knight on a white horse to pop out of nowhere. I mean, I'm sure the political class is extremely uh, under surveillance in Ukraine, and so anyone who might be tempted to try to put something together uh, and, and challenge uh, uh, Zelensky won't last long before you know he's taken out but the problem is that under what condition may we see a peaceful change because and i stress peaceful because the last thing we want is a civil war to break out in what's left of ukraine which could then take us into a whole new sequence of horror for as far as the eye can see for all i know uh since there are no elections right now i mean the country is under martial law so Zelensky said that much. So there's no way we can have a presidential election that should have been held in 2024. And uh, besides, uh, Zelensky is in it almost for his life now. I mean, literally for his life. Uh, he knows that if he somehow allows for a, uh, a process leading up to a, uh, a vote, uh, he's, a, he's a goner. It's over. Mm. 
and uh, then he loses all his prerogative, all his presidential immunity, and everything else. Uh, he'll be picked up uh, uh, in the street or on his way to the airport uh, because you can, you know, bet your fanny that that's the first thing that the military will do is, uh, you know, arrest him and, and try him for treason with summary execution. So he won't even be able to enjoy his billions. He, you know, he won't be able to, unless he just leaves the country a la Ben Ali, it's always a possibility. Or goes to a conference. Yeah, it goes to a conference and doesn't come back, basically. So so exactly. Zelensky pulls Zelensky pulls a Ben Ali, let's say. That's that's an option. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I think that's uh that would be the best option the way things are going, exactly. Arno. Honestly, I'm being honest. The, 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 you're right. He would get picked up immediately and booked on treason charges. There's there's no doubt about that. Because that's the way Ukrainian politics works at the moment. That, that's yes. literally standard practice, isn't it? Um, it we're we're going to go to break. We're going to go to break. I'm uh, with Arno Devale. We're, we're trying to basically game out what's going on in Kiev right now and where they can go forward in 2024. And it looks like the exits are blocked on so many different levels. We're going to take a short break here with TNT, today's news talk. And when we come back, we'll continue this discussion with international human rights lawyer Arno Devale on the other side. I'm Patrick Kenningson, your host. Stay right there. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I've been in and around politics for over 50 years, so it takes a lot to surprise me, much less shock me. But I was shocked, shocked, not that so many Argentines voted for Javier Malay, but that the Peronist powers that be allowed him to win the election. And the thing that made me the happiest for my Argentine friends is the video that Malay put out where he went down the row of a magnetic board that had all the Argentine government ministries listed and all the irrelevant ones, he pulled them off the magnetic board over his shoulder, they're gone, no more. That's exactly what we need to have happen here in the United States. We need Donald Trump back in January of 2025 to streamline our government. We need to move the Department of the Interior actually out into the interior. We need to move the Department of Agriculture to where we commit agriculture. And most importantly, we need to defund and disband FBI and distribute its law enforcement functions to other agencies that have their own law enforcement capability already stood up. We can't have Donald Trump back fast enough. I'm glad that Malay is going to make Argentina great again. We need Donald Trump here to make America great again. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Whatever happened to good, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot, and it's become our automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mum, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Salvos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference, and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means? This is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. 
All right, folks, welcome back. We're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast here on Tuesday. And we're delving into the world of geopolitics. has never been more relevant than it is right now here. And we can have a conversation, of course, about BRICS. We can have a conversation about the multipolar world order. We will have that conversation in the run-up to the new year because that's what people are going to be talking about. They're going to be wondering, where is the world going? Where Where is all this taking us? Is there going to be changes? What sort of changes should we look forward to in the next few years in terms of great power politics? How is that going to affect us economically wherever we are in the world? Those are important questions, uh, but we'll we'll delve into some of these things over the next couple of weeks for sure. Um, but right now I'm talking with Arno Develay, international human rights lawyer, independent journalist as well. He is based in Russia at the moment, covering I- events there for the international audiences on different media outlets. And Arno, um, recent statements by, by, by Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, is basically saying he believes that the United States want to make Iran uh, their sort of major target. That, that'll be the next sort of big enemy to deal with, as it were, in the international stage. And so my question to you is this. Uh, Russia has, on the UN level, uh, with the uh, representative, rep, permanent representative there, Nebenzia and Polinsky as well, made very strong statements defending the Palestine's right to self defense. So they're clearly uh, opposing what Israel is doing in Gaza, along with many other countries as well. So is does is Lavrov talking here about this being a unilateral action by the U.S., or does is Russia conscious of the reality that Israel might want to drag might want to drag the United States into a confrontation with Iran? Because that also seems like is that's that looks like what's going on as well. How how's Russia viewing the U.S. and the Middle East here? It's it's a very sensitive topic, with all of the U.S. naval assets parked there. Russia's got massive assets parked in Latakia in Syria. Where is Russia right now on this issue? Well, obviously, I mean, there's it's a two-parter. I mean, if we look at the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I put quotation marks on conflict, obviously, because it's more like a one-way street right now and down the way, down the road to uh, uh, war crimes. Uh, Russia is trying to basically take traditionally uh, a restrained approach and not put the blame on either parties. Uh, this is a... a predicate to be uh, a credible uh, sponsor of peace negotiation if those are to be resumed. But for this to happen, uh, obviously, uh, there's going to have to be uh, an extended ceasefire. Uh, Internal Israeli politics are going to play a major role as well, because obviously, the uh, current prime minister is under a lot of fire and criticism right now. Uh, and uh, this might alter any kind of uh, negotiated settlement to the extent this process is resumed. So for now, this is basically the Russian approach on this particular issue, although uh, it bears in mind to uh, uh, keep in mind that uh, BRICS is increasingly leaning into offering uh, itself as an alternate form for those negotiations to take place. But it's very long and arduous, uh, fraught with uh, miscalculation, missteps, 
uh, and it has to be coordinated in a very uh, tactful way so as to not shatter uh, what is essentially a nascent uh, political uh, block. So this is, you know, this is what's going on on the conflict itself. And, and Russia is trying to somewhat uh, remind international opinion of the principled positions of international law on the conflict. And uh, so it, it, it's all about resolution, respecting the resolution, providing for two-state solution. Some people may have reservation as to the viability of a Palestinian state with the current colonization process. Let's you know remind our listeners that from 1993 all the way to now, we went from less than 100,000 settlements in the West Bank, just to take into account the West Bank, to over 750,000. So you would need to dismantle all those colonies. So this would basically, uh, you know, uh, eliminate the uh, the colonial, I mean, the the the, uh, the colony-minded uh, uh, parties in the uh, Israeli political makeup. When we understand, when we take into account that they have a preponderant role the last ten years, uh, this might be a big hurdle. But this is pretty much, you know, the position that the UN has. As as uh, adopted, and the international community at large has adopted, we have the Saudi Peace Initiative also, which has been basically dormant ever since it was announced back in two thousand two, which the uh, Crown Prince Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, through his own foreign minister, reminded uh, just a couple of days ago. So we have the tools. We just need to basically get uh, the Americans to bear pressure on the Israelis. And this is not something right now that looks to be, you know, easy to accomplish. Uh, why? Because of the internal political dynamics of uh, American politics. And the Israeli file is front and center, is the third rail. So whether you deal with a Republican administration or a Democrat administration, uh, they will always try to outcompete each other to provide this unlimited support for Tel Aviv. Uh, and no matter what it is, uh, Tel Aviv might say, you know, uh, we don't want to negotiate. We want to at least maintain the status quo as it is. Uh, uh, they will get a blank check from Washington. And so that's an all-starter. What we may be saying, uh, if we take into account the political uh, personnel right now, is uh, whether in Washington with the neocon basically running foreign policy, we know the neocons have obsessed over Iran for decades. And uh, Netanyahu might be trying to himself politically uh, go for doubling down uh, and uh, try to enlarge the conflict uh, so as to include Iran. And obviously, uh, now we get into very uncharted territories because uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, reinforcement of the bilateral relationship between the Russian Federation and the Islamic Republic of Iran the last few years. They are great partners. And Iran is a key part of this new architecture bearing on the uh, uh, the uh, putting together of the One Belt, One Road initiative and to provide stability in the uh, West Asia region. Um, the Chinese uh, are the first one to promote stability because without stability, the One Belt, One Road is a goner. It cannot work. So it's all connected some way or, so, or, or another. And 
bearing on you know this question of whether or not Iran might next be targeted by the U.S.-Israel compact, uh, this would have very serious consequences, obviously. And we can see that provocations are daily, on a daily basis now, being conducted. Since a couple of hours ago, uh, it was reported that the uh, Eisenhower, USS Eisenhower, basically entered the Persian Gulf waters, and Tehran was very strict and firm. Uh, it enjoined the American crew to keep their airplanes on the deck of the uh, aircraft carrier. Uh, communications were held in uh, Persian in both ways, uh, and a lot of uh, those quick, uh, agile uh, Iranian boats were swarming around the aircraft carrier. So somehow, you know, nothing happened. But, you know, if we recall what this guy used to say, uh, Patrick Clausen was his name. He's a, uh, he's a neocon uh, uh, from the uh, State Department, as you would have it. Uh, back in uh, 2012, I think he said, you know, we're never, he was saying this kind of like, you know, in a very neocon way, you know, those people seem to be taking issues of war and peace in a, a very a light way, like it's a joke. But he was essentially telling us, you know, quite openly that, well, you know, uh, a, a U.S. Uh, a ship or U.S. aircraft carrier could go down. And next thing you know, we could uh, find ourselves in a position where we can blame Iran. And, you know, this would trigger the war we've been waiting for. So if you keep in mind that despite the ongoing truce right now, I mean, uh, humanitarian pause, you should call it, uh you know, uh, uh, militias uh, that are more or less close to uh, uh, the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran in terms of outlook, their resistance uh, members, uh, components of the uh, axis of resistance, uh, they are not uh, under obligation to uh, uh, mark any kind of pause. And so they are constantly uh, harassing U.S. bases. And the U.S. has been bombing eastern Syria recently to try to uh, disrupt, disrupt those uh, the, the flow of attacks, and we're talking about 70 attacks since October 8th. So the pace has increasingly and drastically uh, increased, and uh, this could be this kind of uh, guerrilla warfare, which at some point will, uh, you know, may, might get Washington to react. You know, uh, and uh, you know, again, where where you know, we could also see something happen in the uh, Strait of Bab el Mombed. Uh, you know, off uh, the coast of Yemen, a U.S. ship or, you know, an Israeli ship. This this is, a, you know, a, tr uh, a trigger wire. You know, there are trigger wires all over the place in the region. And to the extent, you know, the U.S. is, uh, let's call it the way it is. I mean, losing influence in the region. They are vilified in the region because, you know, public opinion has seen that the U.S. has done nothing to restrain the Israeli atrocities. Quite the contrary. Uh, they've refused uh, to basically play ball and adopt those resolutions, which might have mitigated civilian sufferings in Gaza. So now the U.S. is increasingly being perceived as this aggressor. And, uh, you know, we might be, you know, witnessing a situation where the neocons are willing to basically double down and create a new front, you know. This would be the, uh, you know, what the, the neocons have been waiting for, and this would uh, serve the interest of the uh, far-right uh, messianic uh, government uh, currently in place in Tel Aviv as well.
Look, look at what we've seen, Arno. Iran's been pretty clear. They're, they're not going to attack Israel unless they themselves are attacked by the United States or Israel directly. So they're not they're not going to just kind of jump into that conflict. So the, they're not going to get that opportunity. So what the only thing that can really trigger that, as you said, Arno, one of them is a false flag attack on U.S. soil or somewhere in the West attributed to Iran that elicits a, a response from the U.S. or Israel or both, and then Iran retaliates and then we have that World War III situation. Aside from that, it's just not going to happen. So they're they're absolutely freaking out right now in America, Arno. I've been watching U.S. media, all the so-called Middle East experts. They don't know what to do. They say, oh, there's been 60 attacks on all these U.S. bases. They throw a map up on Fox of like 40 different little U.S. Bases, and I'm just sitting there like, why do you guys need 40 bases in Syria and Iraq? Like, what are you doing in Syria for, to begin with? So the U.S. is normally deploying its proxies to attack state actors, to get to provoke them and get them to respond. Now it's the other way around. The shoe's on the other foot. Those those other uh, non-state actors are poking the United States, and they don't know what to do, Arno. They're not used to this situation. They do not know what, to, what the path forward is, and they're now questioning why we're there in the first place i think this could become a big issue in the election and it will take one republican maybe donald trump who knows to basically be the outlier and say maybe we need to withdraw our positions in the middle east so if that doesn't happen um, i can't see a good outcome for the u.s in this your final thoughts arnold before we wrap up top of the hour coming up but we really thank you for your time and your insights on this but go ahead arno devilay well, I would say it's interesting that you mentioned the proxy uh, because now the U.S. has become the proxy of the Zionist regime, essentially, in the region. And so, you know, we could be, you know, in a situation where the U.S. doesn't really get to decide what to do. Uh, you know, the Israeli will be basically, as Netanyahu himself once eloquently stated, orient, you know, ever so slightly the way they want it, you know, the United States. It's To him, it seems to be, you know, uh, easy, easy does it, so to speak. So uh, we're dealing with someone who politically is backed against the wall. He's got corruption cases, you know, to the Kahoot, uh, he and his wife, and uh, owing to his Jabotinsky, uh, uh, you know, upbringing, he might see himself as uh, the king of Israel. This is when they call him King Bibi, not for nothing. So, you know, he's been banking on this uh, attack on Iran for a long time. Uh, he's been, people might not take him seriously, you know, when he comes to the UN or goes to U.S. Congress and makes those speeches. But the guy, you know, uh, knows what, uh, you know, where he's going in his own mind. And, uh, you know, keep in mind they have bases in Azerbaijan. They understand the logistics. So the logistics is in place. The treaty between uh, Tel Aviv and Baku calls for uh, the establishment of uh, Zionist bases there. Uh, they can land planes, but as long as the planes are not carrying missile, well, there you go. So what you do is basically uh, uh, they can land planes, but as long as the planes are not carrying missile, well, there you go. So what you do is basically, uh, you know, you uh, just carry enough gas to get one way through where you're going over Iran. You drop your payload and uh, you land in Baku and you refuel and you're on your way back. So it's it's all it's all arranged, all it's all there. Uh, but you know, again, you know, will Washington have uh, you know the uh, wherewithal to stop Tel Aviv? That's the question. 
Well, we're a long way from Charlie Wilson's war, aren't we, Arno, uh, in Washington? <laughs> I bet they're hearkening back for those good old days with what's going on now. Arno Devle, international human rights lawyer, independent journalist, joining us from Russia. Thank you very much, Arno. Appreciate your contribution today. Thank you, Patrick. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure indeed, and a big thank you to our guest in the first hour, Basil Valentine. Look, I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. That's all we got time for today. Really appreciate your listenership, your viewership. We'll see you guys here, same time, same place tomorrow with another fantastic program. We're looking forward to it. We hope you are too. Stay on TNT. Mm-hmm.